Let's turn in the scriptures to Psalm 111. Psalm 111. Over the past few months, I've considered what to preach on Father's Day. As I said on Mother's Day, I sensed a particular burden to preach distinctive messages on Mother's Day and Father's Day and not just make applications, um, appropriate applications on that day from whatever series we were studying. So I've been praying about what to speak. And many weeks ago, I came to the conclusion that I should preach Psalm 112. It's the psalm that describes the godly man. It describes what true masculinity looks like. But as I began to explore Psalm 112 more deeply, about two weeks ago, I became convinced that I couldn't teach Psalm 112 without also teaching Psalm 111, because they're designed by God to be complementary. So I'm going to teach them together. Psalm 111 describes the God whom men should fear. Psalm 112 describes the man who fears God. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright and the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all those who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work. And his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts, they're trustworthy. They're established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and all who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He's gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He'll be remembered forever. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm. He trusts in the Lord. His heart is steady. He'll not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He's distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth, but he himself melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. In just a minute, I'm going to summarize the main message of these two songs as I see it. But first, I want to point out something that you may have picked up in the reading, and that is how they complement each other. I want to point out six different ways in which these two psalms complement each other. The first one is that each of these songs is an acrostic poem. It basically means every line of Psalm 111 begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet and works consecutively, as it were, from A to Z. It's like an A to Z psalm, even though Z is not the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Psalm 112 does it again. So we have two A to Z poems, essentially, back to back. 
We live in a culture that loves A to Z books, don't we? In preparing the message, Vera and I did a little maybe 10-minute hunt in our home for books that we had that were A to Z books. And they included, interestingly, not just kids' books, but books for readers on every level. They included one of my favorite A to Z books of all time. P is for pterodactyl. It's called the worst alphabet book ever. (laughs) Acrostic books are still widely popular, and writing within an acrostic can be wonderfully memorable, and it can even be formative for our thinking. Psalm 111 is the A to Z song on the God who is worthy of fear. And Psalm 112 is the A to Z song on the man who fears God. So we have two A to Z songs back to back in this sacred collection of songs. The second way in which these complement each other is Psalm 112 begins right where Psalm 111 ends. Psalm 111 describes the God who's worthy of fear and it ends in verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's right where Psalm 112 picks up in verse 1. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord. So Psalm 111 continues right into Psalm 112. It's almost like, I wonder, if it's stanza 1 and stanza 2 of the same song. Maybe. Third way in which they are complementary. The most dramatic similarity between the two songs is that the second half of verse 3 is identical. His righteousness endures forever. And you might say, yep, they're identical, except they're different. Because in Psalm 111, his righteousness refers to God's righteousness, and in Psalm 112, it refers to the godly man's righteousness. Remarkable. Fourth similarity. This complementary description of God and the godly man continues into verse 4, where each are described with a pair of adjectives, gracious and merciful. In Psalm 111, 4, the Lord is gracious and merciful. In Psalm 112, verse 4, the life of the godly man mirrors God. The God whom he worships is gracious and merciful, and he is marked by a gracious, merciful, and righteous life. The next is in each psalm, verse 9 emphasizes generosity. Verse 9 of Psalm 111, the poet says, God generously paid a ransom to pay for his people's freedom. His people were poor and enslaved in Egypt, and God redeemed them by paying a ransom for them. In Psalm 112, verse 9, it emphasizes again that the godly man generously gives. He distributes freely. He gives to the poor. The sixth and final way that these psalms are similar, they're complementary, is in the way that they emphasize eternity. These two songs emphasize the word forever. Psalm 111 uses the term at least five times depending on how you count forever and ever. Psalm 112, again, uses the term at least five times, only in our translations we don't see it, because two of the uses are not forever, or never will the godly man experience this or that. The two songs together use the term forever over ten times. They're emphasizing eternity. So with these demonstrations of how these songs are almost like fraternal twins... I now want to state the main point. Here's how I would summarize the main point, and I'm driving particularly at application for men, even though the godly people described here are both men and women. I'm going to be applying it throughout the message to men. The way I'd state the main point is this. Men, at the core of your life should be the worship of God. And just like God's glory will endure forever, This psalm, especially Psalm 112, teaches it could almost sound blasphemous. But for those who are godly, your fame 
will endure forever. Of course, to God's glory, all to God's glory. At the core of your life should be the worship of God. And just like the Lord's glory will endure forever, your fame will endure forever, all to God's glory. Now, from this point on, I really want to use these two psalms to encourage the men, and particularly the dads at Tri-County. I want to encourage you in seven different ways, and I hope conclude in a way that is delightful. The first way in which I would urge the Christian men in our congregation to be shaped by these psalms is to say, Christian men, I pray that our lives are marked by worship. Both psalms open, praise the Lord. And then Psalm 111 continues with the psalmist's commitment, I will thank you, God. I'm going to give you wholehearted thanks in the company of all your people. And both psalms then emphasize the need to fear God. Praise, thanks, fear, summed up in one word, worship. At the center of a godly man's life is worship. Fearing God comes up hundreds of times in the Old and New Testaments. And Lee explained it in his message just a few weeks ago, that for the unbeliever, fearing God means being terrified that he is the great judge before whom we must give an account. He is the terrifying judge before whom we will give an account and be condemned. And if you have not called out to Jesus to save you from the condemnation that awaits you for your rebellion, I urge you to do so now. Flee to Jesus. Let the fear of God, as the words of amazing grace say it, drive you to the grace of your Savior. The grace that once taught your heart to fear now drives you toward God as your Father because you've been forgiven in Jesus. For believers in Jesus, we are no longer afraid of the condemnation of God. There's no condemnation. We're not afraid of the wrath of God anymore. Jesus exhausted it on the cross. And yet our lives, from the moment of our conversion on, should be characterized by a deep awe, a reverence over God's unique majesty his holy majesty and this is an awe that results in obedience a sincere growing persevering obedience to god this is what the fear of god looks like fear praise and thanks describe the life of a man who worships god and it says that this is going on in the man's heart but it overflows in public public worship is the overflow of private worship And as I've meditated on these songs, brothers, I've just been thinking, God, make me a man who worships you. Help me not to grow cold in my worship. I want to worship you in private more than I worship you in public. I want my worship of you to be continual. God, I want to commit to praising you and thanking you at all times, privately, publicly, when my joy is like the morning sun. And when I'm weeping in the night, God, make my life characterized by worship. These psalms drive in that direction. Christian men, I pray that our lives will be marked by worship. I also pray that they'll be marked by exploration. That's the second term, exploration. Psalm 111, verses 2 and 3, is where the songwriter says, Everything God has done is full of wonder and majesty. And look at how verse 2 ends. The works of God are studied by all who delight in them. That word studied is where I get the concept of exploration. Some people think, life is just boring. Are you someone who easily gets bored? That says much, much, much more about you than it does about the God who made you and the world in which he made you to live. Because God's works are full of wonder. This includes what God has done in creation, which is something that we explore when we study nature. It goes on to encompass all that God has done in salvation, which is what we explore when we, when we study the Bible. And it includes what God has done in providence, which is what we explore when we study history. 
What God has done in creation, in salvation, and in providence is full of wonder. All of his works are full of wonder. And now for the picture. Two weeks ago, my family was at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. And we were marveling at the design of the skeletal structure of the Tyrannosaurus Rex. It was astounding. Although they didn't acknowledge God's design in any of the, the, the boards in the museum, the spinal column of that massive animal screamed like a siren. I made, I made with skill, I made with wonder. One of the greatest delights of my life is to explore the Bible. I get to do it week in and week out. And I get to explore what the Bible reveals about God's plan to save the world through Jesus, his chosen king. And I get to engage in this exploration as part of my career. And even though I've taught the Bible thousands of times and I've explored the Bible for tens of thousands of hours, I'm telling you, I've been in the cave and I'm coming out. It's awesome. I never get tired of it. It continues to thrill me and thrill me and thrill me. It's wonderful. One of my favorite genres of literature is history, especially biography. And over the past year, I've had the privilege of listening to Dick Winter's memoirs had the privilege of reading two powerful accounts of Mormon conversions, one written by Lynn Wilder and another written by her son, Michael Wilder. I read the biography a few months ago of Jackie Hill Perry, it's her autobiography, called Good God, Gay Girl. What a powerful story of someone coming under the authority of Jesus. I read Tommy Kidd's biography of Thomas Jefferson, so powerful. And each of these books has led me to marvel throughout the past year over the way God's designed history to unfold with such beauty and courage amid such gross brokenness and corruption. History is full of the wonder of God's works. It's just amazing. According to this song, Psalm 111, those who know God are driven to a life of exploration. It's no wonder that some of the world's greatest scientists and historians have been believers because Christians should be constant students of God's works. We should be frequenting libraries and valuing education. We should be studying the Bible daily, taking nature walks to marvel at God's wonderful works in creation. On occasion, we should watch great documentaries to see what God's done in history. We should be explorers. Third, Christian men, I pray that our lives will be marked by righteousness. I pointed out that the most compelling similarity between these songs is the second half of verse 3. They stress the loveliness of of eternally enduring righteousness. First, Psalm 111 in God, in his righteousness, and Psalm 112 in the godly man's righteousness. I have to explain the significance of this verse, and we have to dig deep in order to understand it rightly. We have to understand the relationship between the two, and as you might guess, I'm going to do so with the help of Romans 1, 2, and 3 which is the most significant commentary on righteousness in the Bible. Righteousness refers to simply doing what is right. And only God is perfectly righteous. In fact, the fact that God is righteous, that he only does what is right, demands that he must justly judge all unrighteousness. And that means that every human is condemned because there is no one who is righteous, no, not even one. Yet God, in his great grace, again, I go back to the song that Sarah sang, how can it be? Amazing love. 
God in his grace devised a righteous way to declare unrighteous people to be righteous. This is the truth of Romans 1, 2, and 3. That the righteous God can declare unrighteous people to be righteous and maintain his righteousness, not be a bad judge. He did this when he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to live righteously and then to die as the substitute, bearing God's righteous punishment for all the unrighteous who would take refuge in him. So the righteous God can declare righteous any rebel who submits to Jesus. Anyone who calls on the Lord Jesus, save me, forgive me, rule me, lead me, shepherd me. You call out to Jesus and submit your life to him. You can be declared righteous by the righteous God. Praise God, for his righteousness endures forever. Psalm 111. And Psalm 112 indicates that that righteous status that God can give you righteously through faith in Jesus, that righteous status is life-transforming. If you want to use the words of James, James chapter 2, if your faith doesn't produce work, then your faith is dead. The righteousness that God produces in us includes everything that these psalms describe. A life that fears God and worships him through trials. It's a life that remains committed to his people. Righteousness looks like pursuing faithfulness in your work and in your marriage. Being self-controlled in how you use your money and in how you use your tongue. For those of us whom God has declared righteous through Jesus, we have the power of God's Spirit producing righteousness in us. And this righteousness, according to Psalm 112, verse 3, this righteousness that God is working in us will endure forever. That means at least two things. Put thinking caps on. This is huge. If you're going to be glorified and inherit and inhabit an eternal kingdom, and you have been made righteous by God, then you are forever going to live righteously. For the rest of your existence, after you see Jesus, from that moment on, you will be forever righteous in all of your work. But it also means that any righteousness God works in you right now, you will be heroically remembered for forever. Your righteousness is going to endure forever. Wow. This should encourage us. This should drive our lives. In Revelation, John was given a vision of everyone in heaven wearing white robes. And it was clearly explained to John, do you know what those white robes are? Those white robes are the righteous works of Christ's people. That's powerful. We are going to be forever remembered for the heroic righteousness that God worked in our lives right now. Hmm. Christian men, I pray that our lives will be marked by righteousness. I pray that our lives will be marked by forgiveness. I pointed out earlier that these songs rejoice that God is gracious and merciful and the godly people, those who know God, are gracious and merciful as well. This is in verse 4 of both songs. I said earlier that this pair of terms, gracious and merciful, is rich because this is clearly an allusion to what you might call the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. In Exodus 34, God explained to Moses why he wasn't going to destroy the nation of Israel, even though they had just horribly rebelled. God explained, in effect, there at the foot of Mount Sinai, quote, I'm the God who's merciful and gracious. I forgive sin, and yet I never let the guilty off the hook. God's justice is full of grace, and his grace is full of justice. It's been pointed out that Exodus 34, where God says, I forgive sin, and yet I never let the guilty off the hook. 
would have forced people for centuries to scratch their heads. Wait, wait, how can God forgive sin and not ever let anyone who's guilty off the hook? The answer doesn't make sense for 1,500 years until Jesus dies on a cross as our substitute, bearing our punishment so that God can justly forgive all those who take refuge in Jesus. Psalms 111 and 112 are together emphasizing that God is full of gracious forgiveness. And those who follow him increasingly mirror his gracious, compassionate forgiveness in our lives. Fifth, Christian men, I pray that our lives will be marked by trust. By trust. That is the primary idea in Psalm 112, verses 4 through 8. Verse 4 says very powerfully, even when Christians are in the darkest of circumstances, God has a way of shining his light into that darkness. I think that certainly refers to the light of his word that can pierce our dark experiences. I would guess that every believer in this room can testify that there have been times in our lives where we have been horribly depressed and experienced the power of just one of God's promises. Sometimes just a single word that God has spoken and it can pierce the darkness of our depression. It certainly means the light of his promises, his, his word, which is full of precious promises. It also certainly includes, when we're talking about the illumination of our darkness, it includes the light of God's presence. There have been times where believers say, I know God is with me. Other times, and you don't bank anything on this, but other times people will say, you've been praying for me, thank you for telling me. Over the last two days, it's like I could feel the presence of God with me. Sometimes you don't feel that. But many times God does allow us to experience, I know you're near. You're convincing me that you're right here with me and I'm not walking alone. Even when we don't have the feeling of it, we have it in black and white in the scripture that when we're walking through the darkness, the blackness of the shadow of death, he's with us. We don't need to fear I think this also, when it says that his light pierces our darkness, I think it includes many encouragements that God gives us when we're in dark times. A timely song that you end up saying, God gave that to me for that season, and years later you still remember the encouragement of that song that reminded you of God's goodness. Maybe it's a timely gift. Maybe it's a timely meal that's dropped off when it's needed most. Maybe it's a timely encounter with a friend. This happened to me in an unforgettable way in one of my darkest seasons at Walmart. These sorts of encouragements flow out of God's compassionate heart and they keep piercing our dark experiences until we're with him, until the darkness is fully lifted. It's because of God's precious promises and his faithful presence and his good plan, according to verse 7, that we who belong to him can live without any fear of, of ultimately bad news. It's verse 8. It's why we can live with the confidence that God is going to deal with every enemy. I think it's just sometimes really, really helpful. I'm on this subject of trust. I think it's really, really helpful. This is my experience. To hold up God's promises. You might go to a Romans chapter 8 about creation, groaning, and one day it's going to experience the redemption of the children of God. Or Re Revelation 21 and 22 about this new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells and there's no tears and there's no pain and there's no curse anymore. You read these passages of Scripture, sometimes it's just really helpful to hold these up and then think, what is the worst case scenario right now? What's the worst case scenario for the economy? What's the worst case scenario for elections? What's the worst case scenario for my health? What's the worst case scenario for our congregation? 
What's the worst case scenario for my job? What's the worst case scenario? Hold it right up next to these promises and say, I really don't need to fear anything. I'm safe in God. Nothing can separate me from his love. I'm his. I'm his forever. God, I really don't need to fear anything bad that might happen tomorrow. The righteous man doesn't need to fear bad news. Number six. Christian men, I pray that our lives are marked by generosity. I pointed out, again, that these psalms emphasize generosity in verse 9 of Psalm 111 and in verse 9 of Psalm 112. According to the first song, Psalm 111, God generously paid a ransom to redeem us. It doesn't come out in the English Standard Translation, but the emphasis is on the term ransom, a ransom he paid to redeem us. And throughout the Old Testament, songs like this one would have remembered the way that God had freed Israel or redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. The ransom that God paid was actually the blood of the Passover lamb. But once Jesus came and was crucified on Passover as the lamb of God who can take away the sin of the world, we now understand that God's generosity and the ransom he paid is greater than we can imagine. He gave his one and only son, not for temporary political freedom. It's not like all God was concerned about was to get Israel out of Egypt so that they could be under their own government. No, God was doing much more. He was freeing us from eternal condemnation and purchasing us a life forever in a curse-free world. That's how generous God is. He paid the ransom for us when we couldn't pay it. What a generous God. And then it's no wonder that according to the next song in verse 9, the people who know God are similarly generous. We're never going to outgive God. It's impossible. But we can give in a way that reflects God. Interestingly, Paul quotes a phrase from Psalm 112 verse 9 Centuries later, in 2 Corinthians 9.9, you might jot it there if it's not already noted there in your Bible, next to Psalm 112.9, 2 Corinthians 9.9. In 2 Corinthians, Paul was urging the church at Corinth to pool together their resources to support the impoverished, persecuted, suffering brothers and sisters 500 miles across the Mediterranean in Jerusalem. And Paul reminded the Corinthians, that their generosity would demonstrate their faith. That their generosity would be part of the harvest of righteousness. It shows that Paul, when he uses the verse, understands the entire context of Psalm 112 that he's quoting from. He's saying, if you give generously, you're going to show your faith. It's going to be part of the harvest of righteousness that God is growing in your life. And you will be forever remembered for it. Notice that the godly are both liberal in their giving and yet careful in their giving. Verses 5 and 9 of Psalm 112 also emphasize that giving should be just. So when God blesses the righteous with wealth, it overflows in their generosity to the people around them. Carefully, justly, we don't seek to give in ways that deepen people's poverty and deepen their indignity. You might want to read the book When Helping Hurts as a caution against that. We give carefully, but we give liberally to those who need it. That's what the godly do. The relationship between the two songs demonstrates that God's generosity spawns our generosity. It spawns the generosity of the godly. I want to just take a minute. We're nearing the end. We're in the sixth of seven points, and we're going to end with a, a simple conclusion. But I just want to take a minute to, to reflect on one of the greatest stories in world literature that centers on this theme of generosity, spawning generosity. It's something that you may not know, or it's something that you might know and maybe have never reflected on. This story has become popular in our culture through Broadway. It's Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Hugo wrote extremely critically 
of those who had power in the early 1800s in France. He wrote very critically of the French aristocracy. He wrote very critically of the Roman Catholic hierarchy. He focused instead on the miserable condition, les miserables, the the miserable condition among the French poor, among the, the street people. And the central character in his book, Les Miserables, is a criminal named Valjean. Valjean is released from prison after 19 years for theft. Valjean, running with his papers that wouldn't give him a job anywhere, was cared for one night in the home of a small town priest. The priest was described as a poor peasant bishop who was disliked. The priest showed this former convict respect as a human being. And when he came into the priest's home, the priest told Valjean, this isn't my home. Everything I have here belongs to Christ. Whatever I have, consider it yours. And the next morning before leaving, the next morning before leaving, Valjean wickedly stole expensive silver from the house of this priest who had been so kind to him. Later that same day, Valjean was arrested with the priest's silver in his bag. And the police brought him back to the priest. And they said, we found this guy. He has your silver in his bag. We believe he stole it. And the priest looks and says, in essence, he didn't steal it. I gave it to him. I told him anything I had was his. And then in front of the police, the priest said, but, but Valjean, you forgot the two candlesticks from the mantle. And he handed to him the two candlesticks. The police left the home, and the priest looked at Valjean and said, use this silver to become an honest man. That happens by the second chapter, at least in my edition of it. And the rest of the story is, Valjean has received generosity, and it transforms his life and makes him generous. The rest of the book describes how this generosity transformed him. He becomes an honest businessman, and he cares for hundreds of employees. Most dramatically, he ends up adopting a young orphan girl named Cosette, whose mother tragically died. She had been one of Valjean's employees, and She tragically dies, and he takes this orphan girl into his care and and protects her and loves her and gives to her. And eventually, Cosette falls in love with a young man named Marius. And Valjean, even though their love is very immature, Valjean goes, and in one of the battles that Marius is foolishly involved in, Valjean saves this young man's life. Eventually, Cosette and Marius get married. And after their wedding, Valjean's health is failing. And as he's about to die, Marius and Valjean's daughter Cosette are overwhelmed with a sense of the love that Valjean has shown them throughout his life. And the end of the story, page 633 in my edition which is not nearly as long as the original story is, says, they saw there in that man's deathbed Valjean's strangely lofty and a saddened form. They saw in him an unparalleled virtue, supreme, mild, humble in its immensity. The convict was transfigured into Christ. They were bewildered by this marvel. They didn't know exactly what they saw, but it was grand. This is a fictional story. It's not a perfect story. But it powerfully pictures the way that Christ's lavish generosity transforms our lives to be marked by lavish generosity. So much so that the generosity that we show throughout our lives, people see behind it the generosity of our Lord. Wow. Christian man, I pray that our lives will be marked by generosity. And I pray that our lives will be marked by, finally, eternal hope. Eternal hope.
we humans are made for eternal glory. We're made as mirrors so that the brilliant glory that's seen in our lives is actually much greater in the source that we're reflecting. And throughout our eternal existence, everyone who has been saved by Jesus will reflect God's glory. I emphasized at the beginning that these songs repeat the word forever and emphasize eternity. The Lord is eternal. His great character qualities of righteousness and compassion, they're eternal, they're unchanging. He's always the same. His covenant with his people is eternal. He's promised to save us, to redeem us, to redeem us along with all of creation from all the effects of the curse through Jesus. That covenant is eternal. And he's faithfully working out that covenant in history. The Lord's going to be faithful to that covenant until we are experiencing it with forever joy. We're going to experience it eternally. And our good deeds will be remembered eternally, as I emphasized before. So I'm now starting to land the plane, okay? How should this shape our lives? I've tried to emphasize over and over the heroic deeds of people whose lives have been transformed by God. It's central in these songs. Right now, Tri-County, each of us should live with a sort of hope, a confidence that produces heroic virtue. Fathers in particular, your righteousness is going to be remembered forever. May this make you strong, dads. Your righteousness is going to be remembered forever. You know, dad, your faithful work out of which you gave a portion of your funds to the gospel's advance, your faithfulness at work, and your giving, they're going to be remembered forever. So faithfully keep working and faithfully keep giving. Your faithful sharing of the gospel with people who belittle you, it's going to be remembered forever. So don't lose heart and keep sharing the gospel. The fact that you fell to temptation 10,000 times and yet you kept getting back up and kept fighting, that's going to be forever remembered about you. It's going to be some of the righteousness you wear on your clothes. That story is going to be told over and over. He's the guy who kept getting back up 10,000 times again. So keep getting back up, brothers. Keep moving forward in living for God. Your faithfulness to your wife. You might say, but you don't know what our family is like behind closed doors. It's so difficult. My wife makes things so difficult for me. You're going to be forever remembered as the brother who was faithful to your wife, even though it was challenging. Keep being faithful, brother. You know, you might be remembered as the kind of dad your dad never was. Do you know that that patch will be something that you wear throughout all eternity? Here's a guy that was blazing a new trail in his family history. You're going to be remembered for hundreds of thousands and millions of years as the brother who blazed a new trail and was the kind of dad that your dad never was. So brother, keep being faithful. Keep being faithful to the Lord. This kind of future eternal hope promotes heroism. Your righteousness is going to endure forever in the same way that soldiers who served heroically for a year or two in active combat and earned medals are forever decorated and forever remembered after battle. Our lives are short. Brothers, live heroically now because your good deeds will never be forgotten. Here's my conclusion. I hope I end in a way that's delightful to you. It's my unofficial translations of Psalm 111 and 112. I've translated them. Translated is a gracious term. It's pretty pathetic. But as if I were reading A to Z books to my children, these translations are not perfect. I've had to jam 26 English letters into 22 Hebrew letters. The key word between the two is not always identical, though I tried in many cases to make it identical. But I hope 
that my A to Z translations of these two songs give a bit of the sense and the progression and the beauty of Psalms 111 and 112. And I hope that you know that I had a boatload of fun writing them on my day off last week. (laughs) Throughout the reading, I'm just going to make a few comments of explanation, just like I would if I were reading them to my kids. So here we go. Psalm 111. Alleluia. I'll bless the Lord with my whole heart. I'll give him thanks with the whole congregation of people whom he's saved. This is what we do every Sunday when we gather with the church, when we gather with the people God's made righteous through faith in Jesus. We gather to give him worship. The works of the Lord are dazzling. They're explored by all who delight in them. You know, if God continues to give you life, I pray that you'll be an explorer of God's dazzling works in creation, in salvation, and in providence through history. Fame and grandeur fill God's work. His righteousness endures forever. Indelible will be the memories of God's jaw-dropping work. The Lord is full of kindness and love. He maintains the strength of those who fear him, providing for their needs. You know, even though God does sometimes allow his people to suffer and even die, so many times he gives his people renewed strength, just like manna in the wilderness so that they never went hungry. And you know, there have been so many times in my life when God has given me rest and food to sustain me when I was weak, both physically and spiritually. God will never, never forget his covenant with his people. Omnipotence fills everything God does for his people, especially the way he provides the nation for their inheritance. The qualities of faithfulness and justice characterize all God does. And all of his works reinforce all of his words. His words remain solid. They're stable and steadfast forever and ever. With faithfulness and uprightness, God triumphs in everything he does. He finishes all that he begins. The Lord paid a ransom to unshackle his enslaved people. He not only did this with Egypt and the ten plagues and the Passover and the splitting of the Red Sea, he did it much more greatly when Jesus came and died as the Passover lamb for our sins. And he's going to finally rid the world of injustice when he triumphs over all of his enemies at Jesus' return. The Lord paid a ransom to unshackle his enslaved people. It's on the basis of his covenant vows that the Lord orders his people's lives. Holy and wonderful is the Lord. There's no one like him. He's utterly unique. Just like X marks the spot for the treasure. You wondered how I was going to do that, didn't you? (laughs) Just like X marks the spot for the treasure. Fearing the Lord is where the treasure of life is found. Where wisdom for life begins. Yes, all those who fear the Lord live life with an unshakable foundation. Let me tell you, the praise that's given to this righteous God will continue for zillions of years. It'll never, ever end. Alleluia. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord. He's a man who, just like Psalm 1 teaches, deeply delights in God's commands. His offspring will dominate the land. The entire generation of the upright will be blessed. Jacob's descendants, back in Israel's history, never dominated the land like God intended. Really, only the the one offspring of Jacob, Jesus, will dominate the land. Jesus and all who follow him will forever inherit the earth and will reign with him. Financial good will characterize the house of the godly. And his righteousness will endure forever. When the upright man experiences darkness, God will continually illuminate his path. Justice 
and kindness characterize this man's life. Lovely is the life of the man who generously lends to others. That is, the life of the man who manages all his work with integrity. Never will this righteous man's life be shaken. On and on the righteous will be remembered. Bad news can never unsettle this man's peace. His heart remains quiet because he trusts the Lord. His heart firmly relies on God. That's why he's never afraid. God will sustain this man's peace until he triumphs over all his enemies. He treats the needy with lavish generosity. His good deeds, they'll be unforgotten. He'll be forever famous for his strong virtue. The wicked person is enraged when he sees the righteous man's success. That wicked man wants the righteous X'd out. Yet even though he yearns for that outcome, it'll be the wicked who fades away. The wicked person's zeal to see the righteous falter will come to nothing. Father, I pray that you would work these songs, these A to Z songs of your glorious greatness and of the blessings, the goodness that you bestow on the godly person's life. I pray that these songs would transform us. I pray that we'd be filled with delight in your good word and desire to be characterized by worship, by trust, by righteousness and generosity, by eternal hope. God, I pray that our lives, the lives especially of every man in here, I pray that we would be centered on worship. I pray that you'd make us men who forgive others like you, who are generous more and more like you. I pray that you would give us heroic virtue that's deeply rooted in our eternal hope. And God, I pray that as we think about how we might be forever famous for living lives that honored you, I pray that we would be utterly humbled by it. Because every crown we're given, we're going to cast at your feet. And every bit of of praise that we receive, we're going to say, God, you did it all. We're going to reflect on you. Oh God, I pray that you would give us heroic virtue that deeply humbles us. In Jesus' name, for Jesus' glory and our good, I pray. Amen. Amen.